0: Okay, is everybody ready now? Okay, Okay, I already opened this up with uh, prayer. Um, We read the prologue last time. Remember the prologue to John's Gospel is just the first 18 verses. And those first 18 verses kind of spell out the main themes in the Gospel of John. You know, the Gospel of John, uh, one of the main things uh, given to us in John's Gospel is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, The Trinity is... Sort of there uh, in seed form in the Old Testament, but it really comes uh, in full force in the Gospel of John because you have the incarnation. Uh, you have that opening verse. What is? Look at John one one. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, so already you have another person here because the Word is distinguished from God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, so right there, there's two and then jesus speaks in the upper room discourse in john 14 15 and 16 about the sending of who he's going to send who into the world the holy spirit okay so clearly you have the three persons distinguished in john's gospel you have the very full revelation of the doctrine of the trinity there in john's gospel remember john 1 uh, verse 12 there and 13 As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so you have one of the major themes of John's gospel is the necessity of the new birth. Uh, And you see that all the way through. Uh, Apart from the new birth, uh, people cannot understand. They just can't know Christ. They can't know the things of God. Uh, Nicodemus uh, did not understand the Old Testament. He did not understand what Jesus was even talking about when he said, you you must be born again. Nicodemus is is totally baffled by this. But apart from the new birth, uh, no one's going to understand or embrace the truth. Okay? And there's other themes that are are there, but we're not going to spend too much time talking about that. But I just wanted to show you, if you you, uh, have a handout, do you all have a handout I, I got here? Now, when I was in seminary, when I uh, took Johannine literature, it was called, where we studied all of John's writings, they call it Johannine literature. Um, So we studied John's gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, which are the five books that John wrote. Um, I had actually just read uh, James White's book, The Forgotten Trinity, which is a great book. And he argues in that book that the phrase monogenes, the Greek word monogenes, which is normally translated as only begotten, he argues that it should be unique or one and only. And right after I read that, Dr. Waters, my professor in seminary, gave us a case as to why it should be translated only begotten. So he was contradicting what, what White said. And so I, these are my notes from those lectures. And I went back through and edited these um, after that class was over so I could use them later for things like this instead of having to reinvent the wheel. Um, but just, so, just follow, walk through this uh, with me. And uh, I'll try to make this uh, as understandable as I can. The term that's used there, monogonase, is in uh, chapter one, verse 18. It's also in um, verse 14. Only begotten is usually translated as only begotten. Um, <clears throat> what does that mean? What does the term mean? Look at the po- point number two, letter A. For centuries, it was rendered only begotten. It's even in the creeds that way. The ancient creeds translate the term as only begotten. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we say the Nicene Creed, we we say only begotten. Uh, It addresses the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. As such, it is an eternal and necessary relationship. Begetting distinguishes Father from Son. Procession distinguishes the Holy Spirit. So the Father begets the Son. I mean, you have to We are, we are up as close as we can get to who God really is here. So this is all we can say about him. The father begets the son. Okay, the son doesn't beget the father, but the father begets the son and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Okay, does anyone know how, like what is the significance of what I just said and the son there? That phrase and the son. I said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Does anyone know why that's significant? That's why the east-west split happened, was over that phrase. Like the, the eastern church, the western church, the western church said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's one of the reasons they split and are split all the way to this day. Okay? It's called the filioque. Clause in Latin, filioque means and the Son. Because the western church added that to the creed, to the Nicene Creed, the eastern church said, see ya. Okay? It's, one, it's one of the reasons that there's the Eastern Church and the Western Church. It's pretty odd, isn't it? You would think, what difference does that make? Okay? Now, I think it's taught in Scripture. I think that the Holy Spirit does proceed from the Father and from the Son. I think it's very clearly taught in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, but they said, no, 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 that muddies up our doctrine of the Trinity. That's terrible. We can't believe things like that. You see how, I mean, to them, this is like life and death stuff. I mean, to them, these, these truths were so important. Uh, to them, whereas today we tend to be a a bit more indifferent about it. So the father begets the son and the son and the father uh, send the spirit. The spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Okay, so what does this mean? What does begetting mean? Communicating the whole of the essence of the Godhead to the son by which the son possesses indivisibly the same essence with him and is made perfectly like him. This is what is meant theologically. Now, Obviously people immediately wonder how can Jesus Christ be God and be eternal if he was begotten because aren't we wasn't I begotten of my father and that means that I began to exist after him right because he begot me well all of God's relations are eternal because God's not human God is not bound by time like like we are so it's an eternal begetting relationship okay if that makes sense okay um all right let's let's press on here i don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this but the biblical foundation for this is john 1 14 john 1 18 only begotten has been questioned in the last century or two many translations say only or unique Uh, when i was an undergraduate my uh, pastor used to get all upset because the niv translated monogamous as the only or one and only and he said it's not one and only it's only begotten And at the time i was like what is he talking about uh, didn't realize there was any kind of a controversy over how you would translate the word monogonase, but here's here's the case that Dr. Waters made for us. Okay, <clears throat> the because genes is not from genao, which means to beget, but it's really from genomai, which means to become. Okay, those are all those are Greek words. Let me just pl- plot through this here. Does anyone know what LXX means? There, number two, LXX is a reference to what? Mm-hmm. That, the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament, monogonase is used to translate the Hebrew word only. In the New Testament, monogenes is rendered only beloved or dearest. Andreas Kostenberger points to Hebrews eleven seventeen: Isaac was not just his only son, or not just Abraham's only son, but his unique son. It makes better contextual sense because in John 1.12, John speaks of believers as children of God. In 1.14, he points to Christ as the unique son of God. So th- these are the arguments that people have made in favor of unique or one and only as a right translation of monogenes. Okay, Kostenberger argues that this is John's equivalent of Christ's baptismal benediction from the father, and he links it to the synoptic gospels. Kostenberger sees a link to the Old Testament, its references to Israel corporately, and to David as his firstborn son. So this this argument gets pretty technical and pretty involved here, but here's, here's what Dr. Waters said to us about monogenes theos, the only begotten God. Here's a defense of it as only begotten instead of one and only or unique. The issue is what is added to manas, okay? The, the word manas means what? Only or one, okay? So is it is is the term being appended to the word monos, is it genao, which means to beget, is it genomai, which means to become, or is it genos, which means race or kind? That That's the issue. What what are the two words being slammed together in the word monogenes? Is it genao, which means to beget, is it genomai, which means to become, or is it genos, which means uh, race or kind? Now you can't always define a word as the sum of its parts. Okay, that's a very common mistake people make. They'll make uh, when they first start studying Greek, you'll th- you'll see a preposition and a word slammed onto the to the back of it, and you'll think it's got to mean whatever those two words mean together, and that's not always true. Uh, one of the key examples of that, I remember when I was uh, making Greek flashcards. The word "ana genosko," "ana" is a preposition that means up. "Genosko" means to know. Is anyone who studied Greek what does "ana mean? N- no, <laughs> no. <laughs> It's, it's the verb for "read, but it's the word "up and and to know. So I remember looking at gnosko." What does that mean? To know up? No, it means to read. So words are not always the sum of their parts, okay? So you, you've got you to study each word individually. <clears throat> okay, uh, Where else is it used in the New Testament? Uh, three, There's three uses of it in Luke, there's one in Hebrews. Um, luke seven one the son of the widow whom Jesus raises uh, and luke 8, 42 the daughter of jairus and luke nine thirty eight the boy with the unclean spirit uh, hebrews eleven seventeen Isaac the son of Abraham Isaac is not the sole child of Abraham, but this proves a bit too much. Isaac is the sole child of promise. you could argue that that he 's you know in that way, but the uses in john all of john 's uses refer to christ 's relationship with God the Father and note how John links monogonase with life. In John 3.16, that's one of the places it's used. John or God so loved the world that he gave his what? His we all memorized it as only begotten son. We wouldn't normally quote that as his unique son or his only son. Okay, that all who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. John three eighteen uses the same term. First uh, John four nine, God sent his only His only son, that we might live through him, okay? And now uh, look at, this is the classic text for explaining this, the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, John five twenty six for as the father has life in himself, so he is granted to the son to have life in himself. This giving of life is a begetting. The son has been given by the father to have life in himself, so the only begotten son gives life to men. So that's just... Uh, kind of a broad summary of what uh, Dr. Waters pointed out. He also pointed to, I remember, 1 John 5, 1, which says that um, whoever is whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God has been born of him, and whoever loves those who have been begotten of him also loves him who begot. And Waters pointed out that, now there, it is the word Gana'o, It's not monogamous, but God the Father begot the Son, and those who are begotten of the Son, namely those who are born again, we're going to love the one who was begotten of God and also love those who are begotten by, by God in, in the church too. Okay. So is that clear to everybody? <laughs> okay, any questions? What you have a question about that? Okay, look at look at first John five one. I think this 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 is a good one. First John, not John five one, but first John five one. First John five, verse one says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who was begotten of him. And so Dr. Waters said the one begotten of him is Christ. Uh, I mean, loves him who begot. That's God who who begets us. Also loves him who was begotten of him. That's Christ there. So he was begotten of, of the Father. Okay, so for, for what it's worth, there's, there's more that I could go into that discussion. If you really want to dig into it more, I would encourage you to read the, read the section of James White's book on um, the Forgotten Trinity on it. And also, um, I think Kostenberger's commentary on John goes into it too. So, okay, let's, let's press on. Look at verse 19, John 1 verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John. This is John the uh, Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Okay, and what is that a citation from there? Isaiah 40, 40, verse 3. Okay, so John is really the final Old Testament prophet, and he's conscious of this. He knows what his role is, and he knows that he's preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Okay, and what, does anyone know in the Old Testament, what is that term for Lord there that's being cited? Yeah, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. So who is Jesus Christ again? Yahweh, Jehovah, yeah. So when John says, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, it gives me the chills to think, he knows this is God incarnate coming. Okay, he's well aware of that. And uh, it's it's an amazing thing. Of course, this is the same guy who did what the first time he got anywhere near Jesus? Remember when that happened? How old was John the first time he sort of bumped into Jesus? Yeah, he was in the gestational period, okay? And Jesus was probably microscopic at that point, all right? Which also, I think, is a good argument. Um, That's a baby. It's a human baby. And John leaps for joy. So he's well aware from the time he's in the womb, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He can't wait to get out and do his thing and to, to preach and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And, of course, what is John's main mission and life. What's, you can summarize this whole prophetic ministry with one word. What's he telling everyone to do? Amen. Repent. Okay, this, you have this wild man in the desert that wears you know, uh, clothes made of camel's hair and eats locusts and honey. I mean, he must have been quite a sight to see, uh, to go out there and listen to this guy preach, but he just let everybody have it. I mean, this guy was no nonsense about sin and the need to repent. I mean, he did not care uh, who was there. They got the same message from him. So he tells these, uh, these people that were sent from the Pharisees to ask him, well, who, who are you? Are you the prophet? What, what is that referring to? Are you the prophet? What are they asking him? I'm sorry? The Yes. Based on what though? Where in the Old Testament are we told a prophet will come like me? Moses says that where? In Deuteronomy 18. He says one day a prophet like me is going to come and him you must listen to. Okay, And so the, the Pharisees, they believed in that. They, they thought one day that the ultimate prophet's going to come. And so here you have this guy in the, in the wilderness, John the Baptist, who's preaching you know, like a wild man and, and calling people to repent. And people are coming to him and he's baptizing. And they want to know, so is that you? Are you the, the prophet? Now, he is a prophet, but he's not the prophet. He's not the one that uh, Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 18. They also ask, are you Elijah? What, why are they asking that? do remember. It's one of the very last things in our English Bible Old Testament's in the book of Malachi. What does Malachi say? Yeah. Now a lot of people took that literally. He's literally going to come back from the grave. Why? Why would they think? Actually, excuse me. Not come back from the grave. Um, yeah, he's one of the, one of only. How many people went to heaven without dying? Who's the other one? Enoch. Okay, Enoch and Elijah. Elijah goes to heaven on a chariot of fire. Enoch. Enoch's um, story is just amazing. I remember when I was preaching on Genesis years ago, I was looking at the, the Hebrew text, and all it says is, and Enoch walked with God, and it says, and he was not. It's like, okay, for God took him. He was not. It's like, so not not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. God just took him. And people have asked, well, why did he do that? Because um, he can. And someone, I remember someone asked Dr. Waters, so why did Jesus... Sometimes he would heal from a distance, and one time he spat on the ground and put saliva on the the guy's eyes. And why did he he do it in that way that time, but that way the other? And Waters is like, because he chose to do it that way that time and that way the other time. It's like I don't know. We're not told. But can God just take someone to heaven? Yeah, sure, if He wants to. Free tribulation rapture. Yeah. (laughs) God, are you serious? Raptured before the flood, and you know. Oh wow good grief uh, a pre 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 tribulation rapture. do they just the um tradition some of the jews still think elijah is still going to show up yeah they sometimes will when they have some meal or like they leave an empty like a chair and a place set i haven't heard that wow really is that so They they leave a chair for elijah now, now we know from the Synoptic Gospels that, that uh, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of that prophecy, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. It wasn't that Elijah himself was ever going to come back to the earth. It was uh, a prophet's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, but they wanted to know specifically, so is that who you are? Are you actually him? And he says, no, I'm not. That's not who I am. But, okay. And they, of course, they ask him also, are you the Christ? No, I'm not. And then he gives his identity is prophesied there in Isaiah 40. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And if you all recall, when I, when I have preached on the issue of repentance, I've described John the Baptist as God's plow uh, because Israel's hearts were fallowed ground. But John the Baptist comes in as like the plow that cuts through all that and gets people ready for the gospel, gets them ready to meet Christ and gets them ready for the gospel seeds to be planted there. Okay, verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Now, why, what is significant about, about that about that title for Jesus? Yes. I'm... Right, yes. and this, So this is the true lamb that's actually going to do away with the whole need for the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's going to actually take away the sin of the world. So remember, in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, it says it, it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could actually take away sins. But here's the one who's actually going to do it. He's going to really take away the sin of the world. Okay, verse 30. This is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Which is a testament to what? That's right. Because who's older, Jesus or John the Baptist? I'm sorry? Yeah, John's older than him. And he's saying he was before me. It's another reference to his deity. So you see here very clearly, uh, John the Baptist understands Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And you see it in the um, prophecy from Isaiah 40 that he quotes about himself. I'm preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh. And he knows that that's Jesus. But also here, he was before me, even though he was conceived and born um, after him. John was older than Jesus. So you see, John is, is aware of this too. Okay, verse 31. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Now, of course, at Jesus's baptism, what do you see really in full view there? The whole, all three persons are, are right there. Okay, you have Jesus Christ. John the Baptist just said, this is Yahweh. This is Jehovah God incarnate. God the Father speaks from heaven. What does the Father say from heaven at his baptism? This is my beloved son, okay, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, what's the significance of that? Why, why is it so significant that he said, in whom I'm well pleased? That's right. That's right. He is the only man God could ever say that about. He can't say that about me or you. okay? Because we're not obedient. And Jesus, from conception to the cross, so his final moments on the cross, is always pleasing the Father because he was always obedient to him. He always loved God perfectly. He never had a moment of malcontentment. and never had a moment of, of lapsing into sin or lifted up his soul to an idol. No deceit ever came out of his mouth. He was perfectly righteous and holy. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's why if we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we trust in him as our savior, we're hidden in him and God is pleased with us too. Not because of us and ourselves, but because we're dressed in his righteousness. Okay. So there you have John kind of making an allusion there to when he was at the baptism of, of Jesus. And of course, I think John, John himself was confused by a number of things here. John does understand this is the Lord, this is the Lamb of God, but there's things that he doesn't seem to understand. Jesus comes to him and does and requests baptism. What was John's answer to him when he asked for baptism? Should yeah, shouldn't you be the one baptizing me? Okay, and what does Jesus say? Yeah, permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And theologians and commentators kind of... Um, I think the main thing to get from that is that his baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. Our confession has a a paragraph about this in the chapter of Christ the Mediator. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. It really marks the beginning of his public ministry. That's the moment that it really starts. Because as soon as he's baptized, what happens? That's right. He's driven right into the wilderness and he experiences the temptations. Okay? Okay experience this temptation and um i listened to renewing your mind and um sprawl makes the point they went here listened to it recently he was talking about this and um how yeah adam adam's tempted with a full stomach in the midst of paradise jesus is tempted to to eat something you know starving to death you know being supernaturally kept alive in the wilderness you know, so the the you know scales are tilted against him, but he achieves perfect righteousness. He doesn't succumb to any of those temptations. Uh, but he also is tempted in some of the ways that Israel was tempted. Um, remember, Israel wanted food; they were fussing about food, and they were supposed to trust in God. and And Jesus even quotes from Deuteronomy's recounting of that: "Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God," and so forth. There. All of his replies were from Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah, it was like his favorite book to quote from. He quotes from it a lot, yeah. He liked the Deuteronomy, and he quotes from I'm sure he liked the whole Old Testament <laughs> so, since he you know, wrote it. Um, but he quotes Isaiah a lot, too. He likes Isaiah, too. So, Okay, so there you have the kind of the recounting of Jesus' baptism. Now, verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So there you have that designation again. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah," which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, "You are Simon, the son of Jonah; you shall be called Cephas," which is translated a stone. The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, "Follow me." Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Now what uh, Old Testament story does that remind you of? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And what, what happens there with that whole narrative at, at Bethel with Jacob? What's going on there? Remember? So who, who is it that Jacob actually sees in that vision? It's Christ, Jesus okay i mean that jesus is once again these are these are direct claims to deity that he's making here okay you will see heaven open and the angels of god ascending and descending upon not you know my father but on me on the son of man and that's the most common designation that he makes for himself as son of man and of course that's not really a reference to his humanity son of man comes from what where does that phrase come from does anyone know No, it is used in Ezekiel, but it's referring to Ezekiel. It's used as a divine title somewhere else in the Old Testament. Daniel, Daniel Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. Okay, you will see the son of man ascending to the ancient of days. Remember, that's why I made the case when I did all that discourse that um, the coming of the son of man on the clouds is actually a reference to the ascension of Christ coming back to the ancient of days, not the second coming of Christ. Remember, like, being walked through that and going, wow, I couldn't have gotten that more wrong before. It's, it's the ascension of Christ. It's the, it's the going back to heaven of, of Jesus, not the second coming. Okay, okay. so let's look at chapter 2. Now we get into the beginning of the the miracles of, of Christ here. And remember I, remember, I gave you kind of a functioning outline. I just want to keep um, emphasizing it to you because, it's, to me, having outlines of books of the Bible has always helped me remember what's in them. So John 1, 1 to 18 is the prologue. And then John 1, 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12, is the book of signs. And how many miracles are chronicled for us in there? Seven. Always remember, seven is the number of, you know, perfection. So there's seven grand miracles that are recorded in John. And at the end of chapter 12 is the closing of Christ's public ministry. John 13 to 20, most commentators call it the book of glory. And it's about the upper room discourse and then the crucifixion the arrest and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and then there's the epilogue John 21 which is about what the restoration of who Peter because Peter. Peter denied Jesus 3 times and so he's asked 3 times what what does Jesus ask him 3 times you love me do you love me remember the third time he asked him what does it say about Peter do you know I love I'm sorry do you know I he 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 did but it says something about his reaction but he asked him a third time, did what? It hurt his feelings. It actually says that. Peter was upset. He was hurt. He kept asking him that. And I always think that's, a, that's really remarkable. So G- is Jesus allowed to hurt our feelings? Yeah, I'm sure. So he, he purposely did that. He purposely hurt his feelings. Because he's like, you know, you denied me three times. you got to say this three times, Peter. Okay, uh, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. And that's kind of a little bit symbolic there, isn't it, you think? Because normally you put out the good wine first and then the inferior wine later, but in redemptive history, the inferior wine is set out first and you know the coming of Jesus Christ is, is better wine later. So there, there is some symbolism. I don't want to be too allegorical here, but there, I think there's some of that here. Verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Okay, so that's the first miracle is Jesus makes probably somewhere around 150 gallons of really good wine uh, for this wedding um, that was taking place there in, in Cana. And of course, weddings were a much bigger deal back then than they are now. They used to typically lasted several days. And so they had to have a lot of food and they, they celebrated and um, drank a lot of wine. So it would have been really humiliating. It would have been really embarrassing for them to run out of, of wine. And so that that was helpful. Now, there's all kinds of, of stuff about, was Mary, was it wrong for her to kind of put him on the spot like this? Um, I think Mary certainly was was guilty of sin at times and mary, mary was a sinful person just like like anybody else but whatever your understanding of the details of the interaction of jesus with with mary here it has nothing to do with asking mary favors today okay because this passage is used by rome um to say that well look you know she obviously has big clout with her son so if you can't get something from him, in, just ask his mother and he'll ask jesus for you or, or something like that and that's just um that's scripture twisting of the highest order, it really, it really is. There's nothing, it has nothing to do with um, what's being said here. Okay, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Okay, you now stop there. And we know from the Synoptic Gospels, he also did this when? There's, there was more than one cleansing of the temple, right? He does this right at the beginning of his public ministry in John, but in the last week of his life, he does it again. Now, a lot of people have said, Well, the, this chronology is all messed up, you know, or whatever. And Dr. Waters pointed out, No, he just did it more than once. He was in Jerusalem, and when he saw what they were doing in there, he trashed the place and threw them all out and said the same thing he says just a few days before his arrest and his crucifixion towards the end. So there were definitely at least two cleansings of the temple that he, that he did. Okay, does that make sense? So don't, don't, don't worry about the, you know, the chronology. He, he did this more than once. Okay, verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, now just real quick, I want you to notice this is a pattern that we're going to see again and again as we read through John's gospel. Jesus will make statements that have spiritual meanings and when people interpret him in a certain way, they're always wrong. How are they going to interpret him here? Literally. When he tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, unless a man's born again, why does Nicodemus not understand him? He interprets him literally again. The woman in John chapter 4, whoever drinks the water I shall give him will never thirst. What does she think he means? Literal water. Okay? That's one of the reasons when, when Rome tells us, when he says, whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, well, that's literal. Obviously not. Okay, he even says the words that I speak to you are spirit and and they are life. He's not talking about literally eating his physical body. But that's one of the things that's so bizarre to me about the way that that Rome will interpret John chapter 6. It's like, don't you see the pattern here? Every time someone interprets him literally, they misunderstand completely what he's saying. Okay, so that's, I want you to notice that here. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, what's he standing right in front of there? He just purged and cleansed the temple. So the temple's right behind him. In verse 20, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Okay, so even even they didn't fully get this until after the resurrection. I think there was a lot about Jesus' entire ministry they didn't understand until after the resurrection. And in fact, when Jesus ascends back to heaven, what does he tell them to do? Wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. In other words, you guys still aren't ready to preach anything yet. When the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to go and preach and do do your thing. Okay, and notice too, uh, at the end of verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. So what two things are on par with each other there? <laughs> scripture and the words Jesus said. He speaks with the very authority of God. You see that there? That's, that's very clearly brought out there. They're on equal footing. Jesus' words and Scripture are on equal footing. Okay. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. It had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What is, what's in man? Sin. And, okay, there are many who, quote unquote, believed in him. Because, I mean, how could you not be impressed by all the miracles and all the power that he was, was showing? Um, but they, they weren't truly believing in him the way that you would believe to the saving of your soul okay any thoughts or questions on john 2 all right let's read a little bit of john 3 and then we'll we'll knock off here there was a man of the pharisees named nicodemus a ruler of the jews this man came to jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's certainly not talking about baptism there, Um, Because Christian baptism has not even been instituted yet; it hasn't even been started yet. Um, Also, that's probably a reference to Ezekiel thirty-seven. If I turn turn back and just keep your finger there, and John, look back at Ezekiel um, chapter thirty-six verses. Yeah, Ezekiel thirty-six verses um, twenty-six, or verse twenty-five and following. Ezekiel thirty-six, verse twenty-five. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. You see it? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this idea of being sprinkled with clean water, and you shall be clean, that's a, a theme in the Old Testament. And so that's really what he's talking about. Born of water in the Spirit, meaning that those are two references to the same thing. They're both references to the new birth. They're just different ways of referring to it. That's one, one of the many reasons we don't practice immersion, we practice sprinkling. Uh, because the salvation is not an immersion, it is a washing. It is washing of regeneration, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, the, the sprinkling of water to make, to make one clean, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and Joel, and on and on and on. Th- those are the themes that you see um, paralleled in baptism. Okay, verse uh, 6. <laughs> that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You hear that? So if you're not born again, your, your flesh can only give birth to more what? flesh, sin, okay, that sinful nature, okay, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit, and then verse 7, it's almost like Nicodemus, well, While Jesus is saying this, Nicodemus's face must be going like, <laughs> and so Jesus says, don't marvel, he can see that he's marveling, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, okay, and then verse 8, verse 8 is a very important New Testament verse, because this really is the end, this is the death knell, to all forms of hyper sacramental theology that teach, you know, salvation by baptism or or whatever. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Okay, men do not control the grace of God. God does. Now, he's given us the means of grace and we preach the word and we, we baptize and we serve the Lord's Supper, and we preach the word and evangelize. But at the end of the day, can I regenerate someone by baptizing them or what? I can't. We don't have control over the grace of God. It's like the wind that blows where it wishes. You, can, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. I think it was B.B. Uh, Warfield in his book on the plan of salvation. This is the death of all forms of sacerdotalism. Anyone know What does what the word sacerdotalism refer to? The, the La- I'm sorry, Priestly. Priestly. The, the Latin term sacerdos refers to a priest, and Roman Catholicism and others would be forms of sacerdotalism, because they think their priests have the power to regenerate you by pouring water on you. Like it works automatically every time. and Warfield points out, "No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because Jesus said, "The spirit is the one who works directly upon the souls of men, and he does that like the wind." Okay, now we can say the general place where God does this is in the church and with the preaching of the word and uh, the sacraments and everything else, but we don't have control over the grace of God. God does. God is the one. Yes. Is there anything here also about we don't see don't necessarily see the wind, but we see effects of the wind? Yeah. We don't see somebody's salvation. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's a very, that's a con, another consistent New Testament theme as well. A profession of faith cannot be justified by a profession of faith. I mean, anyone can say, I believe in Jesus, but we can't tell if it's real or not unless we see what? The fruit, their fruit, their works, right? That's what James chapter 2 is about. It really is saddened to me, my entire Christian life, that that passage is so badly misused by legalists and by people that promote a false gospel. It's a very important passage. You know, it says, what good is it if a man says, makes a profession, I have faith, but has no works? Well, obviously, that faith's not legitimate, then. If there's no change at all, if there's no change in affections, no change in the way you live your life, there's no desire to put sin to death, well, then that profession of faith's dead, isn't it? That faith's not real. Okay, and that's a that's a key passage that needs to be hammered really hard today because there's so much easy believism and so much false profession of faith that goes on today. But okay, any other thoughts or comments? Yes or do Chris? We going to? Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you. So when he's, when he's when he's talking to Nicodemus and says, "Do not marvel uh, what I'm saying," mm-hmm. right, he's telling him this is how you really enter in the kingdom by being born again of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Nicodemus would be marveling at that. It must have. Had the wrong idea. Obviously, had the wrong idea about how one got into the kingdom. Yeah, he did. Was he, you know, thinking like all the rest of the Pharisees that you get in there by either being born into the, into, you know, being a covenant-keeping Jew and, mm-hmm. and, and doing what's right? Yeah, you you were in the kingdom by being a Jew, by being circumcised, and by keeping the, the prescriptions of the law and not not doing anything real big or bad outwardly. So, they had a very shallow understanding of the law. That's one thing, studying the Gospel of Luke and reading all the stuff I read about what a lot of those Pharisees actually did believe. They really, they actually had a low view of the law. They, they didn't take it overly serious. I mean, they taught you could, you could divorce your wife if she burned your dinner. I'm like, is that serious? They seriously taught that? Yeah. Yeah. They had a real low view of, of marriage, they had a low view of the Sabbath. I mean, they made all kinds of goofy, like, <laughs> or one one uh, minister described it it's like buying fifteen toothbrushes that are technically yours and just leaving them at one hundred yard intervals. You weren't allowed to travel more than like a few thousand feet from your house, but if you left pieces of your house everywhere, you could go everywhere, you, anywhere you wanted. And it's like, okay, obviously they weren't really serious about. About the law, but yeah, they really thought that by their outward conformity to the law that they were in the kingdom of God, and which showed they really didn't believe what the Old Testament said about the depravity of man, because those passages are, are all over the place. Yes, sir. The other party were, were, was a group called the Essenes. Yes. In the Judean wilderness, like a monastic group. Yep. Have you ever heard the theory that John the Baptist was a member of the Essenes because of the corruption? Mm-hmm. I have heard, they heard that. They clearly that. would have that. known about John, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I'm, they, I'm sure they did. Yeah. yeah. There's so much corrupt, corruption mm-hmm. on the Pharisees and the priestly class that they withdrew to mm-hmm. the way of the Lord. Yeah. It's fascinating because you, you have the four groups within Judaism at the time of Christ, and those four groups are in the Christian church, too. You have zealots who want to take over the world with armed revolution, you have the Essenes, who are essentially monks, you have the Sadducees, who are liberals, and then you have the Pharisees, who are hyper conservatives. And in, in the Christian church, you have the same tendencies. You have liberals that don't believe anything and are actually hellbound. And you have hyper-conservatives who don't actually get the gospel and are, are kind of legalistic. And you, you've always had a monastic tendency all the way through church history. There's always been Christian monks and groups that, that went off by themselves. Everything's so corrupt, let's just go have little cloisters. And then you also have like, like zealots that want to like take up arms and take over the world in the name of Jesus. Like the Crusades and things like that. Now they found a fragment of uh, the Essenes wrote in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Yeah. They talked about one that would raise the dead from Isaiah 61. And really? wow! Some kind of connections to Jesus. I mean, it's fascinating, really. Yeah. A- yeah, the, the whole story of the Dead Sea Scrolls is a fascinating yeah. tale. I know you're, like, into archaeology, but that, that is a cool – it was at 1946, at that 1946? 46-7. Yeah. And some, some kid lost a goat, right? Yeah. And he was looking for the goats and found the whole cave full of scrolls that were like. The Isaiah scroll they dated to like two hundred BC. Yeah. 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 Very few differences. The other thing that's interesting, you have got a facsimile in the museum, the the book of the scroll, the the scroll. How the facsimile you can look at. There's no break between Isaiah thirty-nine and Isaiah forty. It's continuous. Really, really. So so that, yeah, the theory of Deutero-Isaiah is not true, huh? Yeah, you you have to understand, the reason that the Dead Sea Scrolls are so significant as a discovery is at the time that that discovery was made, the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had were from around 900 or 1,000 A.D. So these are copies of Old Testament books that are over 1,000 years older. Than what we had, so when these were discovered, the skeptics are like, right, right, let's see how much the text has been changed and how much it's been corrupted." It was like, you know, the Isaiah scroll was was I mean almost word for word identical. Now there are there are books that are abbreviations of Old Testament books, like the Jeremiah um, scroll is like a it's like an abbreviated version of that, so it's not identical, but it's a fascinating uh, thing to look at. The ones that that are supposed to be um, like exact copies of the Old Testament books that we have are extraordinarily accurate. Yes, ma'am? The, the thing about Jeremiah's scroll, if we read our Old Testament about what happened to Jeremiah's scroll, It was burned and then copied again. Right. So that might, at least James White said that that probably accounts for why we've got a short version and a long version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, the, that it was burned is recorded in Jeremiah. Yeah. You can read about it in there, yeah. And then Jeremiah yeah so okay um, why don't we go ahead and, and stop there but any, any other thoughts or comments or questions i really enjoy doing this with you all it's really good to just read and talk about scripture and share stuff so we'll, we'll pick up we'll, we'll start at john 3 again and kind of work through the the new birth thing that's that's a really important text of scripture but all right let me uh, close this in prayer then Father, thank you for this time to be together around your word, and um, what a blessing it is to see that the truth that you have revealed, that Jesus' words are on par with Scripture. I, 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 I almost forgot about that there at the end of, of John chapter 2. What, a, what an amazing thing. And um, The the new birth and the sovereign spirit, um, what a blessing um, that you work immediately upon the souls of, of your people and make them alive in Christ in your time. And uh, we pray that we'd be zealous in proclaiming the gospel to our own children, to our families, and to one another, and to the lost world. And we pray that you would be glorified in our fellowship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.